Hello and welcome to I Don't Know the Podcast, episode 55, which is Werewolves and Vampires. It's still spooktober, so we still have some time for some scary tales and Halloweeny shit. And for this episode, we're really packing it all in, because we're going to be looking at werewolves, vampires, and witches all in one show. That's right, three for the price of one. You won't get that on Joe Rogan. He can barely concentrate on one subject at a time. I think it's all the weed. But anyway, thanks to another spooky old documentary I found, we're going to run the whole Halloween gamut. So keep listening to find out what I don't know about werewolves, witches, and vampires. Probably in that order. Halloween isn't just heavy drinking while wearing slutty costumes. I mean, it is in our house, but for millions of people across the world, it means a lot more. The word Halloween dates back to about 1745 and is of Christian origin, meaning Old Saints Day. It could go back earlier as All Hallows' Eve, as it's been found in old texts from the 1500s. It was originally a time for remembering the dead. So. How did it change from being a solemn day honouring heroes or loved ones to a day of begging for candy and making everything taste like pumpkin? Well, Americans would be my guess, but I don't really know. And I don't think we're going to find out either. Firstly, because I haven't done that research. And secondly, they don't talk about it in this week's source material, which is the 1994 documentary Werewolves, Witches and Vampires, narrated by the star of Mission Impossible on Airplane, Peter Graves. Werewolf? There. What? There, wolf. There, castle. Sprinkle it on my face and on my body. That twilight. I don't want these virgins. They are going to taste too sad. Plenty of scary things around during Halloween. Middle-aged women dressed as cats is one, but I couldn't do a show about that. It seems that the three main ingredients to a great Halloween are werewolves, witches, and vampires. 
maybe add a mummy into the mix, but not for this episode. I know we've covered vampires and werewolves before, but it seems there may be some information that my extensive research didn't uncover. But now, we'll find that out, thanks to silver-haired actor Peter Graves. There's some cheesy intro, some spooky music, and then we're in. is a haunting sound that can fill your imagination with fear and it is fear of that wild animal that has sparked so many legends one of which is the werewolf i thought it sounds quite nice but then i am a dog person in folklore the werewolf is a person who literally has been transformed into a wolf a real wolf but when hollywood got its hands on the legend reality left the picture What we got instead was a distraught actor having a bad hair day. Does Peter have it in for Hollywood? Is he pissed off that they cast Tom Cruise instead of him in a new Mission Impossible movies? And we learned that anyone, even an upstanding family man, could go to the wolves. Duncan, darling, this is Helen. Helen, these men have promised not to harm you. If that wasn't scary enough... Don't trust her, Duncan. They're out to get you. Everyone in town would chase the poor creature into a murky swamp and then act surprised when they got attacked. His throat. Right, so Peter Groves spends a good while now ripping apart Hollywood for their terrible werewolf movies. This is coming from a guy who starred in films such as Scream of the Wolf, which is stupid because wolves don't scream, and Wolf Larsen, which doesn't even have a wolf in it. It's about a ship. So we'll skip Peter's jealous attack on his former employees and get into some real info. But the true legend of the man-eating, grave-robbing werewolf lives on. It's actually based on the behavior of real wolves. These animals are natural scavengers, and centuries ago, they often prowled cemeteries to feed on the bodies buried there. Remember, this was long before the dead were buried inside coffins six feet under. Of course, anyone seeing these animals in the light of the moon might easily have mistaken them for a monster. Of course, because remember this is the time before glasses and contact lenses. And the tales of what they saw grew into the myth of the werewolf. In mythology and legend, the werewolf is associated with the nighttime, with uh, savage behavior, uh, with antisocial behavior. The werewolf is often thought to be a demon or to be a person who has become the puppet of demons. This guy knows what he's talking about. He's a real doctor. Well, a psychiatrist, if that counts. Another common theory was that the devil might possess a real wolf and cause the wolf to wreak havoc. That would be mad! If you look at the folklore, there is nothing there about half-man, half-wolf creatures. Werewolves simply look like other wolves. They are not different. The only difference is that they are animated by the spirit of a witch or 
sorcerer of some kind. That's not going to make a very good movie, though, is it? Just some big dog wandering around biting people. It'd be like Cujo. Sometimes our worst fears can become another person's reality. Although it's unlikely that anyone can be physically transformed into a wolf, there have been cases of people who have mentally transformed themselves into wild animals. The term used to describe this rare psychiatric condition is lycanthropy. He's right. I looked it up. Lycanthropy is a delusional psychiatric condition. Now, the word lycanthropy actually is related to uh, Greek mythology. Zeus became enraged at uh, the king of Lycan, and he transformed him into a raging wolf. And so we get from Lyca lycanthropy. Hmm, not sure about that. I read a whole Wikipedia page about this, and it doesn't mention Zeus anywhere. It mentions Odysseus, King Nebuchadnezzar, and some Armenian guy, but not Zeus. And what follows is a reconstruction of these terrifying, not werewolf events. Approximately 20 years ago, while I was working uh, on an inpatient psychiatric service, I discovered a case of schizophrenia, which in fact turned out to be a case of lycanthropy. Not really much like a wolf yet. Hello, sorry I'm late. I am Dr. Rosenstein. The first time I saw this particular individual, she appeared frightened, out of control. She was sitting in a chair, holding on to various pieces of furniture, trying to explain something that she just couldn't explain. I have no fear. Wait, so how did he know she was being a wolf? Don't! 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 But members of her family explained to him what had taken place at a recent family gathering. Uh-oh, did she pee on the rug? She completely became overwhelmed by impulses that directed her to behave in a wolf-like fashion. And that we're here as a family to share it. She began to make noises, gnawing sounds, and snarling sounds, and growling sounds. I have a feeling they added those growling sounds. If they didn't, well, she's very good at it. She was being directed by forces completely out of her control. And this resulted in tremendous alarm among the family members. She was taken home and seemed to calm down for a while. It was later that she began to take on persistent animal-like qualities. She had terrible urges and terrible obsessions. Sounds like a ploy to get out of going to Thanksgiving. When she would look into the mirror, instead of seeing her face, would see the face of a wolf. I sort of know that feeling. I look into the mirror and see a sad old man looking back. The doctor met with his How patient for psychiatric sessions every day during her stay in the hospital. You've been taking your pills. She yes. would describe that she is starting to regress back into a wolf-like form or that she would be engaged by a wolf-like delusion. What is a wolf-like delusion? 
What could a wolf become deluded about? I'm afraid to look in the mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? It's not the wolf, it's just the eyes. The eyes are different. She saw two eyes. One was different from the other. One was a very normal eye, and one was a very evil eye. Like David Bowie? Dr. Rosenstock placed his patient in a secure therapeutic environment and prescribed antipsychotic medication for her. And some bonios. At some point, when she was doing very much better, there were conversations about the wolf. Things and everything was, was, was horrible. I think the wolf represented for her evil incarnate. I don't think that putting all those howls in the background is going to make her feel any better. People have a built-in fear of the wolf. We probably don't realize how we inculcate within our children the fear of a wolf. Maybe, but I'm not going to let my kids play with a wolf, no matter how inculcated they are. We even use the expression, don't wolf down your food. And we're communicating, be careful lest you take on some type of animalistic quality. And so we grow up fearing the wolf, hearing stories of grandmothers being eaten alive and crafty wolves disguised in sheep's clothing. And out of these tales comes the greatest fear of all, that we ourselves might actually turn into a wolf. That's not my greatest fear, but we'll leave the werewolf bit there. Peter Graves wasn't taking it seriously at all. And to be honest, I don't think anyone involved had their heart in it. All they gave us was some lady who embarrassed herself at a party and then got locked up despite never telling anyone that she was a werewolf. So Peter moves on to the witches section. And it begins with a cautionary tale. Beware of witches. Don't be scared of wolves, but do be scared of witches. Is this heading into a cauldron of misogyny? Or so we're told. They're wicked. They're treacherous. They're deceitful. And they're also great fun. What? Sounds like Peter's been to one of those solstice things where everyone dances around in their bare scuddies. What would, what would Halloween be without a witch? Or can you imagine Hansel and Gretel without one? All you'd have left is two kids and some breadcrumbs. Yeah, could you imagine Hocus Pocus without the witches? Hmm, actually, that might make a good movie. But anyway. And yet, the witch has been a source of ridicule for centuries. Folklore and legend have, have saddled her with very dark and sinister attributes. She's usually depicted as an ugly old hag with a wart on her nose. No wonder she stayed home until after dark. Ha! <laughs> Am I right, fellas? She'd emerge at midnight, the witching hour, riding her broomstick across the sky. Now, it may be difficult to imagine, but this had to be even more uncomfortable than flying coach. And what about that airplane food? Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? But there was a purpose to her discomfort. She could use the broom to sweep her tracks from the sky. Her fashion sense, however, was not as discreet. She took to wearing large pointed hats, a dead giveaway that she was evil. You see, in earlier times, this style of hat was frowned on by the church, which equated the point with the horn of a devil. The church just sees dicks everywhere. 
In spite of all the negative stereotypes that folklore has heaped on the witch, there is a large and growing number of people today who are proud to call themselves witches. They practice a pagan religion called Wicca, from the old English word for wise. Actually, I think Wicca comes from the English word Wicca. Wiccan priestess Selena Fox explains. Witchcraft is not only alive and well in the United States, but it is around the world. And by witchcraft, I mean the ancient nature religion. I think that's the one where they dance around in their bare scuddies. The word witch has a lot of baggage. One of the things that people think about when they hear the word witch is evil of some sort. We do not worship Satan. We don't believe in Satan. The idea of witchcraft and Satanism becoming synonymous is a result of the negative PR campaign that was done during the Middle Ages. It's true. During the Middle Ages, the media had a very anti-witch agenda. For several hundred years, a witch hysteria swept throughout Europe that cost thousands of innocent people their lives. It was a period in history the witches call the burning times. Do they call it that? It was the time where reason was thrown out the window. If someone happened to not be popular in a community, or if someone wanted their land, all one had to do was make an accusation that the person was a witch, and the trouble would begin for that person. Ah, the good old days. There follows a reconstruction of a witch being interrogated. It's basically two men in a barn shouting at a disheveled woman while chickens run around. It doesn't really go anywhere. People would rot in prisons for years, were hung or stoned to death. People were burned alive at the stake. Some claim the men and women burning the witches were actually saving the souls of the convicted sinners. People that called themselves Christian did some very unchristian-like things. Nothing's changed then. Instead of loving their neighbor as themselves, they exterminated their neighbors, all in the name of eradicating evil. Hundreds of thousands, and some say even millions of people died during this rampage. Millions? The combined population of Europe and North America at the time was only around 120 million. I know, I looked it up. But ignoring that, which is wild exaggeration, Peter moves on to the most famous witch story of all, Salem, Massachusetts. It began in a kitchen where some young girls and a cook were playing with magic. What do you see? What happened next is a mystery, a mystery that ended in tragedy. In January of 1692, a little girl named Betty Paris became ill. She was the daughter of the minister of Salem Village. So it was all little Betty's fault. Before long, her cousin, Abigail Williams, who lived in the house with her, became ill as well. Doctor, what ails them? Sounds like screaming, not illness. Reverend Paris called in a doctor. The doctor examined the young girls and, having no medical explanation for their illness, declared that they had been bewitched. The thing to do then was to find out who was doing the bewitching, punish those people, and all would be well. 
At first, the girls refused to name the people who were supposedly bewitching them. Snitches get stitches, right? But eventually, and most likely out of fear that their own experiments with magic would be discovered, the frightened youngsters began to name names. Having committed sundry acts of witchcraft and sorcery. And the Salem witch trials were off and running. They must have been the OJs of their time. There's more reconstruction with people shouting, you're a witch, and somebody else shouting, oh no, I'm not, and things like that. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Before it was over, 141 people would be arrested and 20 would be put to death on what is now called Gallows Hill. 20. Not millions. 20. Whether or not the people who died on Gallows Hill were actually witches will never be known. I think that is known, Peter. But the same can't be said about today, for Salem has become a mecca for witches, and one of the most visible is Lori Cabot. There are 4,000 witches in Salem today, and we do rituals on Gallows Hill. 4,000? I looked up another population statistic. Salem's population today is 44,000. That means over 10% of the people in Salem are witches. If someone stumbled upon our ritual in the forest, they might be frightened because not many people have seen a witch's ritual or understand that it's a nature religion. Believe me, nobody would be frightened by these people. They're mostly even older than me, and they don't look in great shape. There are certain basic tools that witches use. The pentacle, incense, often in a cauldron. The cauldron for witches throughout Europe during the Middle Ages and before was used as part of folk healing. And cooking children, right? The old wise women who did the healing for their villages also had brooms. And some say that during the burning times, that the broom was a way of concealing the witch's staff that was used in the casting of magic circles. I did not know that. See, you can learn all sorts of stuff if you listen to this podcast. Not often, though. I've cast spells just like other people pray. And we raise the cone of power. To heal someone, to have someone have a prosperous life, for happiness. I think many religions use their prayers and their magic to manipulate the world and people around them. That is harmful magic. It is? Where else would you use prayers or magic? Witches do not cast evil spells. Witches do not try to control other people. Unfortunately, some people hear the word witch and immediately think the worst. I happen to know that this is true from experience. I visited the city of New Orleans some years ago and went into a voodoo and magic shop that was tucked into a dark and mysterious alley. I asked the lady if she could sell me something that would smite my enemies. I was immediately told to leave the shop and to never come back in a very unrespectful manner. True story. The future of witchcraft is as strong and as endless as our ancient history. Witches will never disappear from the earth.
and the world is a far more interesting place with them in it. Why does he like witches so much? But now we get on to vampires. And yes, I know we've covered vampires before, but it's spooky time and we're going to do it again. Peter Graves starts with a long, rambling description of Dracula, and then... Fortunately for us, Count Dracula is only a fictional character. Or is he? Could this symbol of the living dead, the man who sleeps in his coffin by day and searches for blood by night, could this vampire have actually existed? It's a question that captured the imagination of one man, Dr. Raymond McNally, an historian who re-examined Stoker's novel with a detective's eye. It should be pointed out that this guy is not a detective. I noticed that the places were real. Transylvania is real. It's part of Romania. I know. I've been there. Many people still think Transylvania is made up somehow. It's not made up, it's real. And I had this intuition that if the author went to such pains to be correct, impeccably so, about those places, I bet he based that figure he has in that novel upon somebody who existed. Aren't loads of books based on real people? So I started asking Hungarian scholars, was there anybody like Dracula? Does the name mean anything to you? You're in the wrong place, mate. You should be asking Romanian scholars. Could there have been such a person? And I'd reached a complete dead end. I was told, you're a fool, you won't find out anything. This is all folklore, it's a vampire story made up by the wild imagination of this author, Bram Stoker. Forget about it. Or Huita de Asta, which is Romanian for forget about it. Eventually, Dr. McNally stopped asking Bulgarian people dumb questions. He learned to speak Romanian, and he actually went to Romania. McNally discovered his first clue at a 15th century home in the ancient Romanian city of Sigishwara. There's a plaque at the house that says that Vlad Dracul lived here from 1431 to 1436. The father's name was Vlad Dracul, from the Order of the Dragon. The son is Vlad Dracula. Yes, the A on the end means son of. In the 15th century, this Dracula was a very well-known character. He was a horror figure already. He's saying all this like he's the first person to discover it. He eventually makes it to Dracula's castle, probably just by asking for directions. Kindia Tower is a tower at Tirgoviste, which is the old capital of Romania in medieval times. Now it is from that tower Dracula constructed a field called the Forest of the Impaled. Some 30,000 victims up on stakes and poles. Some of those victims had been up there for weeks. It's not a quick death. It's a terrible way to die. 30,000 impaled people in one field. No wonder some had been there for weeks. It must have taken ages to impale 30,000 people, especially if it was just him doing it. Surely he had some help. Dr. McNally believes it was a graphic warning for the Turkish general Mohammed II was intent on destroying Dracula. So the great conqueror, Muhammad II, when he came with his forces, outnumbering Dracula three to one, but when he came to that field, the forest of the impaled, 
I said, what can you do against the man who does such terrible things? And he took his forces and he went home. I guess if your path is blocked by 30,000 impaled people, you're not just going to go around it. Although, it would make me wonder if there's anyone actually left alive to fight. So, we know that Dracula is a terrible person, but was he actually a vampire? One of the new discoveries show that Dracula liked to dine amid his impaled victims. Can you believe that? The stench must have been excruciating. And we have woodcuts, contemporary woodcuts showing that. Anyway, we gathered the blood from his victims in bowls, and then he took bread and he dipped it in the blood and slurped it down. So he was, by anybody's definition, a living vampire. No, not really. He didn't turn into a bat, and I doubt he ever asked to be invited into someone's home. They go on about Vlad for a lot longer, but because it's been done to death, we're not going to. We now look at vampires in more modern times. Now, when I'm talking about vampires in the modern context, obviously I'm not talking about people who are transforming themselves into bats. At least I've never seen it. Uh, what I'm talking about are people who develop the compulsion to drink human blood. I might be regarded as a vampire to pigs. I often eat black pudding, a sausage made from pig's blood. There's a typical pattern in the evolution of this condition that's been dubbed Renfield syndrome, named after the blood-drinking psychotic character in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Jesus, can we not go a few minutes without mentioning Dracula? The first stage generally begins in childhood. Some kind of critical incident occurs where the young person, boy or girl, but usually a boy, discovers that uh, drinking blood can be exciting. This can lead to a second stage of what is known as auto-vampirism, or the lust for one's own blood. Ooh. That then can evolve to a third stage known as zoophagia. This involves the consumption of non-human animals in order to drink their blood. So watch out for your dogs and cats in the neighborhood. Uh, vampires at this stage might uh, grab pets. I think my dog's safe. She's tiny. She's barely got a cup of blood in her. The most advanced stage of Renfield's syndrome is true vampirism, which involves the drinking of the blood of other human beings. Some people who have reached this stage uh, sneak into hospitals and blood banks and try and steal blood from uh, the storage there. This stage of Renfield's syndrome can develop into serial murder. These people actually uh, uh, take blood involuntarily from other human beings. I think the most notorious case in modern times of a serial murderer who apparently had Renfield's syndrome, clinical vampirism, was the Hague case. The Hague case? Why haven't I heard of this? Luckily, Peter can fill us in. During the late 1940s, English newspapers recounted the bizarre tale of John George Hague, and you understand a dapper gentleman who became known as the London Vampire. What? I've honestly never heard of this, and I really think I should have. Hague's victims were his friends, people who trusted him. Don't go far. He would lure them to an abandoned warehouse on the edge of town. 
John. They thought they were going to visit his place of business. They didn't know Don't they were going worry. to their debts. I'm getting the light. Oh, John, do hurry. I really can't see. Haig killed his victims quickly, usually with a gunshot to the back of the head. Reports suggest that Haig's obsession with blood began as a child. His parents frequently beat him, and one day, while being struck with a hairbrush, the bristles drew blood. He probably has a phobia about hairbrushes, too. I wonder if there's a name for that. He sucked the wound and enjoyed the taste. Capitulucetisophobia. That is the fear of hairbrushes. Like a classic case of Renfield syndrome, eventually his own blood couldn't satisfy him and Haig began killing for a fresh supply. It's a rather inefficient method of getting blood. If he kept his victims alive, he'd have a constant supply. But he's treating people like single-use plastic bottled water. In addition to their blood, he also robbed his victims of their personal possessions. Even going so far as to forge their names to gain access to their property. Haig confessed to killing nine people over a period of several years before he was finally captured and convicted. Nine? I thought there'd be more. But anyway, Haig was found guilty and executed in 1945. And that's where we're going to leave werewolves, witches and vampires. There's a little bit more in the documentary, but it's not very good. And I'll really push for time this week. Episode 55. Werewolves, Werewolf, witches, and vampires. The epilogue. So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that Peter Graves has some beef with Hollywood. In folklore, the werewolf is a person who literally has been transformed into a wolf. A real wolf. But when Hollywood got its hands on the legend, reality left the picture. We learnt that Dr. McNally's research has been a complete waste of time. In the 15th century, this Dracula was a very well-known character. He was a horror figure already. And we learned that Peter Graves has a thing for witches. They're wicked. They're treacherous. They're deceitful. And they're also great fun. And there you have it. Peter Graves and a bunch of so-called experts managed to extract all the fun out of Halloween. And... I guess by extension, so did I. Sorry about that. But anyway, happy Halloween, everyone. Thank you to our new patrons, who are Todd X, Sean Watson, Mike Henry of Bandology with Mike and John, Amelia Childs of Ghost Hunting in New England, and Jamie Miller of Surf City Bake Shop Huntington Beach. Also, thanks to our graphic designer, Raymond Rowell of Project Raven Creative. Thanks for listening, and tune in again to find out what else I don't know. <laughs>